Good morning. Uh, go have and have a seat. We're going to do some communion in a bit. So, uh, in Catholic tradition, um, in the church service, as, or mass as they call it, they have uh, this entrance procession, right? So, I don't know if you've been in a Catholic mass, but they bring this kind of like, you know, they bring the cross, the candle, um, by designated members and deacons. Um, almost like, it's almost like a wedding you know, type of thing where like the wedding party comes down and there's a ring bearer. I'm at the end of the service after everything's concluded, they had kind of like a reverse order, um, recessional, kind of that small parade where everything goes back out, right? Um, It's foreign to most of us evangelicals. um, And I don't think that that's something we should necessarily do here. Um, But I think one thing that's super cool um, about it um, specifically is that they carry in the book of the gospels and when they carry it in, they, they bring it, they put it on the lectern, and they speak out of it. But when they when everybody leaves, they don't carry it out. Um, and it's might be confusing, but it's deliberate. Um, it's a physical reminder that while the good news starts as words on a page, it is then spoken and then heard and then takes up residence in the minds and the hearts of those who believe. And so the church gathering doesn't really end when we walk out, but rather the gospel continues in the Christians who have heard and believed it scattering into the world, imbued by God's love through his good news, right? Amen. And in John 8, uh, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and I love that idea of the gospel entering us and going out through his church, through his people. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, in our tradition, we practice communion on the first Sunday of every month, um, following Jesus' specific instructions to remember his sacrifice that brought in this new covenant, where we're no longer under the law because Christ fulfilled all its rules, all its regulations through his perfect life, paid for, he paid for our sin through his death on the cross, and he defeated death through his resurrection. Later on in John, uh, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And I I can't think of a better way to illustrate this deep abiding uh, union of Christ's death becoming life in us other than the one that Jesus gave us. Broken bread for his broken body. The poured wine, his blood poured out. We eat and we drink, and that communion meal dwells in us. It abides in us. It becomes one with us. It's that life from Christ that follows us, stays with us even after we exit these doors. Um, Now, this meal is for Christians, um, those who follow Christ, people that seek um, this intimate abiding relationship with him. And if that's something that doesn't describe you this morning, I, I encourage you in, in the next couple minutes um, to turn to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, even now. Amen. So while we sing this next song, walk up, grab some juice and crackers, standing in for the, the wine and the uh, bread. Hold them, remembering Christ's broken body and his blood poured out. And then after we finish the song, we'll eat and drink together, a physical image of Christ's death becoming abiding, abiding abundant life in us, not just here in our church service, but present and real every day of our lives. In uh, 1 Corinthians, we read the words of Paul, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's eat and drink together. Lord, till we see you face to face, may we abide in you and you in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading today is Daniel 6. 16 through 28. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Lord, I just bless your holy and mighty name. Mm. Thank you for your faithfulness to us and to all generations, mm. as you were to Daniel. And thank you for your word. Speak through Grant today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a seat. Grab a Bible. Open with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. And, I, you know, very early in the week or last week or whenever it was, I, I committed, you know, just in my own heart to preach this whole thing together and not divide it up too much. And I, I mean, I wish I hadn't have done that. Like, it's, this is such a rich passage, but it is very familiar. And, um, and I, I, I'm going to try my best to, while there's many big ideas in this chapter, to, to really revolve around a big idea that I think is frequently missed as we study Daniel 6. Daniel, and the big idea is this. This is about God. It's pretty easy to go, this is about Daniel. And this is about how to be safe in the lion's den. There might be application there. And it might be that you and your life feel like you've been thrown into a lion's den and, and really need saving. And Daniel is a wonderful example to us. We will cheer for Daniel as he is faithful to Yahweh when it would have been easy to compromise. But let's not make the mistake of saying what this is is a roadmap so we'll never be in trouble. Or a roadmap so when we get in trouble, when there's danger, God, if we do it right, has to save us like he did Daniel. That is not the point of this. It hasn't been the point of any of these old great stories in the book of Daniel. Rather, this is about God and his power and the option that all of us have to go serve the gods of our culture or to like Daniel, no matter what, when you're second in command or when you're getting thrown into the lion's pit, still go, here I stand. Yahweh is my God and I will trust him. The psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. Have you ever waited patiently for the Lord? He inclined and heard my cry. That is, is an out of the pit. There are several Psalms that are out of the pit Psalms. And to be out of the pit, you have to first be in the pit. The question is not whether God will save you like you want to be saved. Rather, the question is, as we find ourselves deep in the dark pit, is he still God? Will you still worship him? Because I promise it is the conviction of those 
who are steadfast in their faith that God is the Savior. But we must model ourselves after Daniel. Say, this is not about me. This is about, am I going to serve the gods of this culture or am I going to serve, we would say, Jesus? In Romans, uh, well, first in, in Acts, the martyr Stephen looked to the heavens and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and at the moment of death, as he was becoming possibly the first martyr of our faith, he prayed something that he very well had, might have heard Jesus pray Jesus saved from the cross. God received my spirit and then cried out another thing that there's no way he could have come up with this on his own. This is from the cross, his, his walking with Jesus, his seeing Jesus. He cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Intimacy with God, even as his life was taken because of faith. Instead of looking at Daniel in the lion's den and going, this is about how you can solve all your problems. Why don't we look at this and say, this is about the deep understanding that wherever you are, you are not alone, but God is with you. You can have intimacy with God right now and expect eternity with him. In Romans 8, Paul actually quotes the psalm. He quotes Psalm 44 and he says, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's Christian experience looked like victory to absolutely no one except Christians. We look at Paul and go, what a victorious life. The guards in Nero's court did not think what a conqueror Paul is. But he continues, what do you mean by conqueror, Paul? You just said you're getting your tail kicked day in and day out. He says, we are more than conquerors, and here's why. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God can rescue you from the lion's pit, but the big idea in Daniel is that God is in the lion's pit with you. And you need not be rescued in order to know intimacy with him and to have the hope of salvation eternally and the hope of, of, of the best life you could live now. So let's enjoy this wonderful and familiar story. We'll kind of, I don't know how to teach this except just kind of walk through it. And let's enjoy it. It's Daniel in the lion's den. What's not fun about this? But let's not make it about God solving all of our problems in just the way we want him to. In fact, why don't we not call this story Daniel in the lion's den anymore, but let's call it something like the God who lives, reigns, delivers, and rescues. Why don't we call it God's continuing power in Babylon? This is actually the last story in the narrative portion of Daniel. This wraps up Daniel's life. The last, Paul had just read the last verse in Daniel 6, and it gives you the highlights of the rest of Daniel's life. So Daniel was successful through the Persian Empire there. And we don't have any records of Daniel coming back to Jerusalem. It's very likely that that's what he did, is remained in the court there in, in um, Babylon, which was ruled by Persia. And we have a lot of the book of Daniel left, but we're kind of going to, I'll talk about this next week, we're kind of going to go back in a time machine, and we've seen all the narrative part. We've seen like the story of what happened in the courts of Babylon, and now we're going to get to go back in the rest of the book and go, what was God doing in Daniel's life? Like, what was, what, what was God doing to reassure Daniel that things were going to be okay? And, and it's prophetic. It's a lot of really awesome stories about you know, weird creatures and fire and all kinds of stuff that we're really going to like. But as we wrap up kind of the narrative portion in Daniel, what's it been about? Has it been about statues and has it been about how God saved people from fiery furnaces and lion's den? Or has this been about even in Babylon? even outside the covenant land, even among a rebellious people where there's only maybe one guy, maybe we can make a case for four guys faithful. Still there, God, Yahweh, 
The living God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Even that power extends to Babylon. Even that power, his presence is not limited to just over there, but rather extends to every coastland, including seaside California. So the story isn't just about Daniel. It's not the story how if you're faithful like Daniel, you can make sure no harm ever comes to you. That's just not what the story's about. No, it's, it's much more glorious than that. This is a story about God and his presence that extends from the throne room to the pit. And if you go, man, I feel like I'm in a pit right now, then this story is for you. And of course, we'll cheer for Daniel as a model of our faithfulness. Um, but it will never be about our faithfulness. Rather, it will be about the power and might of God. So, let's dig in. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Oh, you know satraps. To be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one. Are you starting to put the org chart together? Mm, ancient narrative. You get an org chart from the newly conquered Neo-Babylonian Persian like courtroom. So Darius, who we talked about him last week, most likely uh, um, the, the general who conquered, who was the conqueror of, of Babylon, and now he's setting up a government. And uh, you know, Persia was a little different than like me. We might be more familiar with, with uh, Greek strategies or Roman strategies. Persians were a little different. And you'll see that, that the Persians are happy to keep the same guys in power that were in power before. They want to assimilate the org chart into Persian authority. So that's what we see. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one uh, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Now that is a important thing to read. Why did Darius do this? So that he might suffer no loss. The king is interested in not dying, as kings are. So we got to ask already a couple questions. First of all, who's Darius? What's a satrap? And why is Daniel one of three? Well, let's talk about Darius for a second. Darius, secular historians don't even know this guy. You're not going to read if you go get your degree in ancient Babylon. Where would you even do that? I don't know. Um, but um, if you go do that, Darius is not only not a major figure, but his name doesn't pop up in secular history at all. I think it's important that we know that. And some, there's a few ways that, that this might work. Some think that Darius and Cyrus are actually the same guy. Darius is his... Medo name. Remember the, the Medes and the Persians came together to make the Medo-Persian uh, uh, empire. So maybe Darius is his Mede name and Cyrus is his Persian name. Um, and I guess that's possible, but that doesn't really fit the story. That's not my favorite option. The best option to me is, is that Darius is a leader under Cyrus, that he was a general that conquered Babylon. I think we talked a little bit about that last week. And remember, Babylon wasn't the capital anymore. Cyrus didn't set up his, his capital there in Babylon because he's Persian. But Babylon is still a big major city, so he has to set somebody up there who knows what he's doing. And this is, Dar this is how we, we get Darius. Some people even think that Darius might be a title. The name Darius actually means one who holds the scepter. So maybe Cyrus is his name and Darius is his title. Whatever you think, I agree with you. A satrap, you could, I don't know, something between a, a, a governor or a county official. So what it seemed right to Darius, he's a, good, he's a good mind, and this fit the Babylonian model close enough, is to divide this whole just conquered empire of Babylon into 120 counties, states, whatever you want to call them, provinces, and to assign leaders over all of them. And then you have Daniel. Well, why is Daniel one of these guys? Well, in the providence of God, you'll remember that when Darius showed up, Daniel had just been given authority by Belshazzar. Do you remember 
Last week, Belshazzar said, I'll make you put purple on you, make you third leader of the kingdom. And Daniel said, I don't want any of that. But he got it anyway. So Darius walks in and there's Stan and Daniel in purple, maybe fancy hat, I don't know. And so God in his providence has Daniel just sitting there for the new ruler to meet and to empower. Okay, so we're getting there. Verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him up over uh, the whole kingdom. So, and I want to, I, I do want to sit on this for a minute. Daniel was faithful and excellent under pagan leadership. There's this undercurrent in the Christian world that I've known for the last 50 years, that I, if, if, if somebody's not a Christian or if they don't live by Christian principles, I'm not going to work for them. I'm not going to serve them. They're not welcome here. Let me tell you, that was completely foreign to Daniel. In fact, you might think Daniel's this high position. He should start something, a coup or a conspiracy or he should be the one like taking Darius down from the inside. And yet we see the exact opposite of that. We see that the conspiracy comes against him, but that what is known about him is that he has an excellent spirit in him. Now you and I go, where's that excellent spirit come from? It comes from a lifetime of faithfulness. It comes from a lifetime of, of serving Yahweh. This is like, I don't even know how many emperors this is for, for Daniel. This is like number four or five maybe. And the whole time he has consistently been a person of God and he doesn't give his testimony day one. He doesn't try to take down all the Persian gods now that he's taken down all the Babylonian gods. Rather, he is a huge benefit to Darius. And Darius hasn't put it all together yet. He doesn't know what this excellent spirit is, but he looks at Daniel and goes, I can trust him. He does a great job. He's my guy. What do we do with that? Is that how we should act? Should we too, even if we work for, are in a culture that does not honor God, should we be the rebels in that culture? Or should we be those who are a blessing to everyone, even if they don't see things our way? You know, I don't want to spend a, a lot of time here, but I think we do need to get this straight. Um, Daniel's culture had been taken from him, but not his faith. And when we see culture change, we quickly start to go, oh, they're ruining faith. And those are not the same thing. We have a faith in a risen Savior. As long as the tomb remains empty, we're going to be okay. Yeah, but they're being mean to us now. That's okay. They've been mean to Christians before. Yeah, but we don't have as the laws are less Christiany now. That's okay. The laws have been less Christiany before. But shouldn't we do something? Oh, sure we should, just like Daniel. Because here's the thing. More moral culture does not necessarily equate to more faith in God in a culture. We don't make the world so moral according to scriptural morals that all of a sudden everybody goes, wow, Jesus must be the way, the truth, and the life. But over and over, what we see, and I think this is in history as well as the scripture, is that more faith in a culture does equal a more moral culture. That it doesn't start with we have to get our way and then people will come to Jesus. Rather, it's the more we live Christ-like, honorable lives, the more the culture is transformed. Daniel doesn't demand that Babylon look like faithful Israel. Rather, he simply is a little pocket of faithful Israel in the middle of Babylon. This is what it means to live in exile, and in some ways we do. We need not demand that seaside act like Christian-y behavior, act like us. We simply 
take upon ourselves the role of faithful Christians in exile. Practically, I think this means you do a great job. Make your boss look good. Yeah, but he's a jerk. Yeah, he's a boss. I think it means we be honest, even if everybody else isn't. I think it means we be people of integrity when cheating, little cut in corners would be so efficient. I think it means we love people like crazy. If we ever have the thought that somebody might be our enemy, we might immediately go, I know what to do with enemies. The Bible is clear. We love them and pray for those who persecute us. May it be said, and if you think, yeah, but the world's pagan and we have pagan leaders, okay, and maybe in your life you have more, you know, um, than, than average. Maybe you work at a place that is particularly pagan and maybe you feel the pressure that Daniel must have felt. Can you imagine being like one faithful guy under the crush of this pagan empire? But may it be said of us like it was of him, man, I'll tell you, those folks from Lighthouse have an excellent spirit about them. I can trust them. They show up when they say they're going to show up. They do a good job. May that be our reputation too. So Darius sees Daniel doing such a great job that he wants to give him authority over the whole kingdom. You're not going to believe this, but nobody else likes that idea. Yeah, remember who Daniel is. In fact, He's gonna be, they're going to use a pejorative term for him here in a minute. There's going to be a conspiracy against Daniel, and what they're going to call him is one of the exiles from Judah. Now, that was decades ago. Daniel has been a faithful leader in this government for years and years and years and years. And yet, when it comes time to like you know be jealous and hopefully remove him from power, what they call him is that guy from Judah. That Jewish kid, he's not even Babylonian or Persian, right? So, then, verse 4, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. So first they set out and go, we're going to find which way he's doing a bad job. And I'll tell you what, if you think this isn't a thing that Christians are going to deal with, we have to be excellent. We have to be like above reproach because this is exactly what the rest of the world does. And let's not be honest to say we have this in us too. The first thing is, hey, let's see if we can catch him doing a bad job. We need to get him fired. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. And that, that language there is not that he was like perfect, but rather that he was, had integrity. Because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So some questions about this. Why are Daniel's peers seeking to get rid of him? Are they mad because he believes in the one true God? That's not even it, right? No, rather, it's his success. It's just political intrigue. It's not on religious grounds. It's just plain old jealousy. They were there first. They don't like this guy from out of town. They don't want to work for him. And again, may it be said of us that we are faithful in our behavior, in relationships, in our work, in, in, as we're, you know, like I'm an umpire. And it comes up all the time. Hey, what's your day job? I have to tell people I'm a pastor when I had no intention of doing it. I always start, I work at a church. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I just think as soon as, as soon as I tell everybody I'm a pastor, they all stop cursing and won't talk to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I work at a church. Oh, what do you do there? Um, I'm the pastor of a little church in Seaside. Oh, oh, I'm sorry for what I said earlier. <laughs> you know, I, that's okay. That's okay. I always like to say I was, I'm a pastor, but I grew up on construction sites. It's okay. But I know that every time I call a game, that I represent you guys. 
that I'm part of this family, that I represent God. And that at some point, maybe it's not today, but maybe it's next Saturday, this, these parents that apparently don't know the rules of baseball at all and are yelling at me for two hours straight are going to find out who I represent. And it's going to matter. So I make it my goal. It's, I mean, I've got three games this next Saturday, 10 you. They're adorable. This, it doesn't matter who wins. None of it matters at all. They couldn't be cuter. But I know that it's an opportunity for me to represent both you and God in the community. May it be, hey, he's honest. Hey, he has integrity. He treats every kid good. He's polite. If we're going to trip him up, it's not going to be that he's not good at his job. It's going to be something about his faith. You know, I think because we are not a particularly persecuted people and the Bible is written primarily to persecuted people, we are very naturally always looking for persecution in our own lives. How are, I remember like being in Sunday school as a kid and the teacher going, how are we persecuted? And being like, you know, somebody called me a name. That's right. That's not really persecution in Scripture. But the day may come. And when that day comes, will the world find us filled with anger or filled with love? Excellently blessing people around us or ready to fight? Man, how could we, how could Daniel be filled with anger and hatred and represent Yahweh? It wouldn't be possible. Much more so with us and Jesus. So now, so may it also be said of us that if there's any ground for complaint against us, it should be with the law of our God. The other side to this is, hey guys, trust me, as your pastor, if, it, if, if per, real persecution ever does come and if the law comes down that we can't take communion and we can't say the name of Jesus and we can't honor him as the king, I will lead a joyful processional to jail? Like that'll be Okay. But that's all. So now we see that while Daniel hasn't been pushy with his faith, he has been public with his faith. And that's a difficult balance, isn't it? I'm not going to be pushy. I'm just going to serve and do an excellent job. But it is going to be public. There is going to be prayer in my life. There is going to be a Bible sitting on my desk. There is going to be um, the name of Jesus constantly coming out of my mouth. What a model Daniel is for us. We said this in the story of the fiery furnace, but it's evident here too. People of God don't go looking for trouble with the culture, but we do need to be ready for it. We do need to, be, uh, we do need to understand that honoring God is different than the way the rest of the world lives. Okay, so then in verses 6 to 9, this plan comes to Darius, and here's the plan. These high officials and satraps came by agreement. Ooh, a real-life conspiracy theory. I guess it's not a theory. It's here in the Bible. So they came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. Man, this sounds really serious. Um, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Oh, all of a sudden, these guys really care about the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. A couple um, questions I have here is, first, why did Darius sign this if he likes Daniel so much? And, and second, what's going on with the lions? Let's talk about Darius first because I don't have a good answer for it. It's easy to see why these satraps conceived of this plan. They want to get rid of Daniel. It's purely political reasons. They know that Daniel isn't going to stop worshiping Yahweh, so that's what they attack. As for, Darius, as for Darius's part, I, I don't know why he signed this. I don't know if his ego got the best of him. I don't know if he didn't understand Daniel's devotion and he thought 30 days is no big deal. Like we can all... We can all just, you know, cross our fingers and do the ceremonies for 30 days, and then we can all go back to worshiping whoever we want to worship. 
Maybe he was looking for a way to unite the kingdom. Like, he's new in town, and he's trying to unite all of these people. Why not unite all these people under worship of him? Fantastic cult leader move, Darius. But either way, it's signed, and it can't be undone. And we might realize that sometimes it's not our lack of integrity, but sometimes it's the lack of integrity in other people that we're up against. But we do need to talk about the lions. Are there just, in ancient Babylon, are there just lion pits? Like, is it like we're going down to 7-Eleven? Is that the one by the lion pit? Well, the answer is kind of. Turns out that kings kept lions for sport hunting. It's a good move, isn't it? Can't you see that being like a, a in Shrek or some, like making fun of an ancient kingdom or whatever, right? So they keep pits of lions. They keep lion's dens so they can get up with their friends and go hunt one. They let it go. Then they go chase it and get it and go, ha ha, I hunted a lion. But we don't have any records of lion pits being used for capital punishment. This is a unique story in antiquity. So why the lions? Trust me, the Persians knew how to kill people and they didn't need a lion to do it. Well, what if I told you that the lion, especially a winged lion, remember I said that next week when we're in chapter 7, that a lion was the symbol of Babylon. I wonder if this would be like... um, you know, where are we? We're down here. Uh, I wonder if this would, would be like if it happened in, in ancient America. It would be like we want his eyes to be pecked out like by a bald eagle. Or if it was in California, it would be like death by golden bear. Or if it's at my house, it would be death by basset hound. <laughs> would take a long time. Just have to starve to death. Nothing bad would ever happen here. They want the last thing Daniel sees is to be the symbol of Babylon's power. This is not, um, Daniel, we want you out of the way and we got to get you out of the way. Rather, this is, Daniel, we're sick and tired of your success and we're sick and tired of your faithfulness to your God and the last thing that you are ever going to see in this life is the power of Babylon crushing you. This is not Daniel, especially as literature, this is not Daniel versus the satraps or Darius. This is Yahweh versus the gods of Babylon yet again. Can Yahweh rescue Daniel from the crush of the power of not only the the Persian Empire, but the Babylonian Empire too? Well, how would you respond to something that extreme. Daniel's response is to do what he always does. Verse 10 says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Man, there's this, this is just such a spectacular. Look what the narrator of our story really wants you to know for sure. First of all, Daniel knew. Daniel knew. This was not, they did not go and drag him from his house, him going, what do I do, what do I do? No, it says, when Daniel knew that the order had been signed, he's second in command. He might have seen it signed. He might have handed Darius the whatever, feather, Stick, I don't know, maybe stick in an inkwell, maybe that. He might have been there when it was signed. He surely knows about this. So the guy goes, when Daniel knew, what do you do when you know you are in danger? What do you do when you know your character is being assaulted? What do you do when you know people are talking trash about you? What do you do when you know that the world's out to get you? I tend to fight back, naturally. But Daniel does the thing that Daniel has been doing his whole life. Daniel knew, so he went home. 
This thing about him going back to his house, doesn't this really scream that Daniel knows this is not about him? Daniel doesn't have to do anything to defend himself. That's God's job. Daniel's not going to hide, run for the hills. I'm sure he's a wealthy man at this point. If he wanted to go find a cave, he could have. No, he goes home and says, do you remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, king, our God's able to save us. But even if he doesn't, know that we're not bowing down to your gods. I think with his behavior, Daniel says the exact same thing. So he went home because it's not about him. This is about God's power, not his. He faced Jerusalem. This was common for people in exile. The prophets even encouraged people in exile to do it. It's a way to say, I'm not in the covenant land, but I'm still a child of the covenant. I'm facing the consequences of my people's disobedience. I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. But yet my hope is going to be in the God of Israel. And then we see Daniel's prayer. It's humble. He got down on his knees. You can pray on a walk. You can pray in the car. You can pray whatever. But there's something about what we do with our bodies that matters. He got down on his knees humbly. Says he prayed three times a day. It's just consistent. It's just disciplined. There was petition and there was thanksgiving. And then there's that little line at the end. As he had done previously. One of the big ideas in the book of Daniel is the importance of long-term spiritual discipline and faithfulness. And let me tell you guys, now is the time to start spiritual disciplines that will sustain you years from now. I was kicking this idea around and, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is exactly right. It's not good to import stuff into the scriptures, but, but I was thinking about our natural inclination to fight or flight. That when we know that there's danger, this is what humans naturally do. We put our dukes up or we run away. We hide or we defend ourselves. This is naturally what we do. And I think maybe your options are fight, flight, or the thing that you've disciplined and trained yourself to do. Daniel doesn't fight. And Daniel doesn't run away. Because Daniel's probably in his 60s, and he, since he was a child, brought to Babylon, has three times a day faced Jerusalem, given petitions and thanksgiving. And that is sustaining him now. You know, I talked earlier about some of you feel like you're in a pit right now. The world's just kicking your tail. I, I'm, and, you know, being your pastor, I know some of the stories. There's some hard stories going on. And, and um, I'm sure there's many more that I don't know. But some of you are currently in the throne room. Can I tell you that one way or another a pit's coming? And now is the time to begin to be the person that is able to build a life that is able to sustain the tragedy of tomorrow. Man, wouldn't it be great if it was like, well, this terrible thing happened to Grant and he prayed and fasted and sang and gave thanksgiving as he had done previously. That's the kind of life to build. You know the old saying, people who have a Bible that's falling apart usually have lives that aren't. Now's the time to build disciplines to sustain tomorrow's trouble. So, verses 11 through 18, the plot is thrown into action. The conspiracy fires off. The king is sad about it, but there's nothing he can do. Paula read this to you before. You know, I, Darius seems like a pretty strong leader, but then all of a sudden he's like, well, what are we supposed to do about it? And I love that he goes... And uh, he went back sad, and no diversions were brought to him. Like, that's, that's a good life. If, if by grieving you go, no play tonight, you know, no, no, no feast and belly dancers this evening. I just, I'm too sad. But he's distraught, apparently. He feels fooled. 
And so the next morning it says this, and then at break of day the king arose in haste and went to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God who you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? See, Darius didn't really understand the power of God, but he had heard Daniel say it. All of a sudden, then, and it wasn't in Darius' crisis, it was in Daniel's crisis, that all of a sudden, Darius goes, when, when it really, like, when the, the rubber really meets the road, he goes and goes, Daniel, this living God, has he been able to save you? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of lions, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And that is not that I was so good, God, that I was so good, Darius, that God saved me because I'm a special boy. No, rather, this is saying I put my trust in God and God alone, and he's been there for me. It's not just that Daniel is alive, but it's that Daniel hasn't been alone in the pit. It's not just that God is going to save you from the tragedies of your life, but it's that you'll never be alone while you're going through them. My God has shut the lion's mouth, Daniel says. Remember all this stuff about the lion being the symbol of Babylon's power? Hey, Darius, my God, shut the lion's mouth. Your God might be strong but Yahweh's not even a fair fight. Talking about heavyweight flyweight here. Daniel's testimony is, I trusted no one but Yahweh. I served Darius well, and God has saved me. And you know, bad things happen to good people. This is, this is true. And so this isn't math. This isn't like A plus B equals C. But this is the testimony of Christian folks. Talk to somebody with gray hair and ask them, As you've walked with God, is this your testimony too? And they'll say, yeah. Yeah. As I was faithful, God has rescued me. Then King Darius wrote to all the people. This sounds familiar. A lot like Nebuchadnezzar. Wrote to all the people, nations, and languages. So like all that old Babylonian empire, all under him, that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Before Daniel? No, before the God of Daniel. It's not about Daniel. It's about God. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders at heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Once again, one faithful man from Israel. Just one guy um, has, has been used by God to be the catalyst for the king of the entire region to tell the truth about God. Just one faithful guy. Man, I think about that a lot. We're always looking for like to bring the culture around. Maybe what God wants is just one faithful guy, just one woman who will say, I won't worship anybody but God. I'll stop thinking about myself. Just one dude who will be like, I don't care if it costs me money. I don't care what it costs me. I'm just going to make my life about worship. Darius says we should fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Again, he's not lifting Daniel up, but he's saying, you know the way Daniel fears and trembles before his God? Remember, Daniel didn't fear and tremble before me, the king. Rather, it was before his God that Daniel fears and trembles. We should all do that. And then out of the mouth of the general Darius, the Persian conqueror, he says, Yahweh is the living God. Yahweh endures forever. Babylon has come and gone, and Persia will too. And so did Greece, and so will Rome, and so will our culture. But God endures forever. He delivers and rescues like no other God. And then our story wraps up with verse 28. So this Daniel prospered. 
during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Remember, the theme of the book is exile. How do we behave outside the covenant land? Daniel has given us a model for that. Daniel leaves an amazing legacy. In fact, do you remember the, first, the last line of the first chapter? If you still have your Bible open, if you're still with me, just turn over to Daniel 1. When Daniel is being faithful with not eating the meat from the king's table. I think we started that, this sermon series like six years ago, something like that. Remember all that? But verse 21 says, at that very first story about Daniel, says, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel's legacy is one of continual, through regime change after regime change, continual faithfulness before God. God did amazing stuff. I don't know that Daniel ever did truly amazing stuff. Part the seas or raise the dead. Rather, he just was a faithful man in a messed up culture. Do you know what you know what they need? They need faithful people. At no point in the story do we have Daniel starting a revolution, rebelling, or even being disrespectful to the pagan authorities. That's not to say that he wasn't an implement of change. But what we do have is the greatest king in the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the great conqueror of the Medo-Persian Empire both coming to a point where they recognize the God of Israel as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you want our culture to recognize Jesus as the risen Savior? Ordinary discipline, faithfulness. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for a day where we get to open up the Scriptures. Lord, thank you for your enduring faithfulness. Lord, to think that you are the same God that closed the mouths of lions. Really, more than that, God, the same God that defeated the power of the gods of the Babylonian and Persian cultures. The God who still reigns supreme the God who conquered death, calling us to faithful followership of you. Man, if there have been places in our lives, God, where we have not been faithful, but we instead have followed the gods of this world, would you not only forgive us, but would you rescue us? We're in danger. We need to be rescued. If there's repentance required of us, Lord, call us to it now. In fact, while you guys are just in an attitude of prayer right now, if, if right now there's an opportunity for you to turn from worshiping stuff that's not God, to no longer worship yourself or status or career or family or money or sensuality or whatever it is, but instead turn to repent of that and to follow Jesus. And, and if you need to make that decision now, man, we would cheer for you. No matter where you are, no matter how deep the pit, all that's required is to turn and say, Jesus, I will follow you. Give your life to Him today and find Him faithful for eternity. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.